Patrick, guess what came in the mail today? Oh, what? Yeah. Stick it in! Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the MK Productions podcast. We are back here today with an exclusive special episode today. Of course, I'm joined by my co-host, Mac. Hello. And this is not a traditional episode because, first of all, we have a professional, talented actor who's got a hat in so many trades. I am so fascinated by him. I got to interview him once for Scribe Magazine, and he is just extremely talented. Um, let me introduce you all to the one and only Brendan Bradley. Hi, Hello. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. Um one thing I really wanted you to come on the show for was uh, because you were part of the SAG uh, strike. You were a strike captain who worked on the, uh, was focused on the Paramount route, correct? That is correct. We basically, um, SAG did not have a captain system going into this labor action. So we tried to mirror the WGA's existing captain system. So okay. we had uh, WGA strike captains nominate actors that had been part of the WGA strike as sympathetic strikers that knew the basic mechanics of it. So there are about 100 of us the first week that got nominated and assigned to lots. I had not been going to the Paramount lot. I live nowhere near the Paramount lot, but I was assigned there. I thought I'd do it for a week and then ask to transfer, and then I fell in love with the community there. Um, and then we trained up other gay captains and strike captains to basically be a part of this movement to be able to have the coverage on all the gates and all the strike locations. Amazing. So I'm so curious to hear your thoughts because today we're going to focus in on the long, how do I want to put this? The long strike that was the SAG actor strike who rightfully went on strike to get the better rights that they want for themselves and have mm -hmm. a better future. So uh, I really want to start off and just ask you, but why did the actors go on strike? Let's just start as simple as that. So that way an audience doesn't know and is introducing, we're introducing this topic. Why did the actors go on strike? Sure. So um, every three years, the acting contract with all the major studios and networks expires. So we have a regularly scheduled three-year negotiation window uh, to basically meet with their um, legal body, which is the AMPTP that negotiates on behalf of all the studios and networks. So there's a regularly scheduled negotiation every three years to sit down and negotiate this contract for better wages and working conditions. Very boring, normal labor stuff in every industry. Um, and when we got to this negotiation period, we had not kept up with cost of living, basic increases, uh, residuals and things like big streaming and, and you know, other different sorts of revenue capture. Our health plan was underfunded. There are a lot of cans we had kicked over the last decade because we are actually very strike averse. We have not taken a labor action in 40 years mm -hmm. on this contract. So when it came time for this negotiation period, we our negotiating committee went in immediately there were there were rumbles there was tension we were not getting kind of meaningful movement from the other side we actually on a two-week extension to our contract to try to see if we could find middle ground to my understanding i was not in the room but to my understanding in that two-week period nothing occurred they did not respond to anything they did not come to the table meet us anywhere on that contract um, and so they authorized a strike um, for our members to basically enforce a work stoppage um, that would then force them to negotiate in good faith with us. Their decision when we authorized that strike was to walk away from the table. They also did this with the Writers Guild simultaneously. Yes. And so both the Writers Guild and the actors were on strike. Uh, a historic double strike hasn't happened since the 1960s yes. through the summer. And it took literally 90 days of the writer's strike for them to return to the table at all and meet with the writers. It took 90 days of the actor's strike for them to return to the table at all and meet with the actors. Which I find very fascinating because scripts are constantly like being produced and written, but I know nothing was being, you know, filmed by a bigger studio unless it was like maybe like an A24 who worked on some films in between. Um, was it difficult to get the studio's attention as an actor to say, hey, I'm important. Can you hear us all out? Was it difficult? 
to get that? Well, I, I think that the data that we have is that it took 90 days for them to even meet at the table. So I think yeah. they were taking the position that they didn't need us, that they could wait us out. We were taking the position that you can't make these movies, or I think, honestly, more importantly, promote these movies without us. Because the problem with all entertainment product in general is, you know, when the auto workers go on strike, the the manufacturing line stops. They stop yeah. making cars. Um, and you immediately know that that pipeline disintegrates very quickly. It falls apart. With entertainment, we're already on a several, it takes years to make a movie um, mm -hmm. or to make a video game. Um, and TV shows are on, you know, a very long cycle as well, several months. So right. the decisions that we're making of stopping work, the consumer is still watching Netflix. They're still watching TV. There's still product in the pipeline. So it takes a while for people to really feel the effect of that strike. And I think that the most successful um, mechanism we had was that when it came to promoting movies, award shows, things like that, suddenly they felt that they could no longer have actors promoting and marketing the product, um, which is really what cost them at the box office and as well as yeah. made them decide to move things like the Emmys and other the award Emmys. shows until the new year. It was interesting that the, I really want to say when the strike came into effect because we had one of the biggest summer events and that was Barbenheimer. The stars of Oppenheimer walked out of their premiere in London. How did it feel getting that acknowledgement that these other actors who are like in the Paramount movies, they're in the Universal. How did it feel getting that support knowing they walked away from like a big premiere from that and they stood in solidarity with you and your fellow president, uh, Fran Dresser? Sure. I, I think that what this represented across the board was a real new chapter of solidarity and union, union literacy across our entire union. I mean, we are naturally, what is difficult about SAG actor is it represents so many categories of actors, right? We have the same union and same body representing series regular performers, movie stars, background actors, stunt performers, singers, dancers. It's hard to build community within that because those are different tracks with different needs. Sometimes when you're negotiating for the rights of the background actors, you might be compromising some of the rights of a series regular performer, and that can inherently breed or reinforce the competition that already exists in this industry of only one person gets the job. Um, and so I think that this gave us a really galvanizing and incredibly powerful moment for the entire union to fight the same fight. Right. We were basically all working for the same project or movie, which was standing up for our rights as performers globally. Okay. Uh, one question before I want to let Mac ask a question. Um, one huge advocate I would, who I have admired and a lot of people have admired over, I want to say the last few weeks is Fran Drescher. What do you think of her as a president of SAG? I think Fran's a fantastic president. I mean, being a president of this union is such a difficult niche because you have to be famous enough for people to vote for you. Um, but you also have to be open-minded enough to be able to receive so many different perspectives from career tracks that are not your own. Um, and we saw a lot of hit pieces throughout the course of these negotiations of them trying to kind of paint Fran as you know, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Unresponsible. Or they made her look I, I, I mean, kind that, of crazy in a way there. She was just like, they got the worst images of her, like where she was like so stressed out. And I was like, this woman yes. is working tremendously hard behind the scenes. Ab absolutely. And look, that's all a tactic. That's union busting. Like we, we always mm -hmm. see that with any political campaigns, right? We're going into 2024, an election year. We'll see very bad pictures of <laughs> yep. anyone running for office. You know, like that. that yep, is kind yep. of a, a tactic we always see. But I also think that what Fran really represented in this moment is, A, she allowed herself to be memefied, um, which any leader that can own the memification of themselves and even the kind of more counterculture parts of themselves, I think that that's what leads to virality. That will, that's what leads to like social media movements, grassroots movements. So I think that was incredibly successful for her to really allow and capture that. But I also think in the negotiation room, what they were ultimately mad at was she's not a politician. She's not a lawyer. So I like to say in a very loving way, it's like having a raccoon in the in the negotiation room. Like you just don't know what she's going to do. And then you can't do the same old, same old tactics and nonsense that might work on another lawyer right. or work on another negotiating or political person. And I think that that was a secret weapon that we had in that room.
Definitely. I agree to that. I have more questions, but I feel like I'm taking over. Mac, do you want to ask anything? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> the raccoon analogy, I actually like that. It's like she's like her own little rocking yeah. raccoon. I was exactly. Gonna say, <laughs> I was going to uh, say that, you know, you mentioned that this is the first time that the writers and the actors guild have gone on strike concurrently and for the first time in 40 years. Um, do you feel like that this strike was very impactful on the I'd say like the effects going forward for the next three years until the next negotiation going around, because obviously a lot of studios, they did lose a lot of money and everything. So will this strike, do you think this will have them open their eyes a bit, be more open to negotiations? Like this, will this lead to more changes along the way? Do you think? I mean, I think it should. I think we have to look at the exact, the, you know, the exact changes. So in the 1960s, for example, what they fought for was the existence of healthcare and pension. Mm -hmm. um, and residuals at all. So the mm -hmm. fact that I as an actor have had healthcare and have had residuals is all due to the fact that in the 1960s, writers and actors were able to stand in solidarity. And I hope that the initial language changes that we got in this contract are the beginning of what results in a future-proof career for actors decades from now that I never meet. Um, but there is also the activation of, you know, there's a lot of people who have not felt like there was a way for them to serve the union or that the union was just very political or, you know, or it was kind of like a bunch of old stodgy people that were kind of in charge all the time. And right. this has really energized a whole group of new people that know that they can fight for what they believe in, that they have a voice in their union, that they have a presence in their union. The captain system we're hoping will become this new way of serving that isn't election based or political based. It's just people who want to show up and act on something in, in real time. Um, but we also have all these picketers that realize that they could show up for a day, a week, a couple hours and make meaningful change. And I think that that will carry over for decades to come, having that sense of ownership over the union. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then and that's another thing too. Like you walked the Paramount lot, like you were a picketer in the Paramount lot. You got to walk that lot. How did it feel to be one of the people like spearheading this chance of captain, like just being in the front lines during the strike? Um, I mean, it was it was a magical experience. Paramount, we affectionately called Party Mount. Um, Party so we Mount. tried to really keep a very positive energy because we realized that the more fun we had, the more frustrating it was to the employers right. um, because they were kind of relying on breaking us down, on breaking solidarity, on us becoming demoralized and giving up. And when we found that we could basically go to set every day um, and be with our community that became much more enjoyable than being yeah. alone at home out of work. Um, there were five different gates at Paramount that we had to serve and they all had very different energies and personalities. So we had what we called the podcast gate over at Lemon Grove, which was just people put in little headphones and just walked across this quiet, small little area. Um, we had a gower gate that had shades. So if, you know, kids or um, some of our more senior members, people who need to get out of the direct sunlight could go there. We had our main, what we call the paparazzi gate, um, which is right out <laughs> front where it's like where all the heavy action was happening. And there was a lot of drive on traffic and a lot of news cameras. And usually that's where the celebrities like to walk. Um, and then we had a gate for, had a grass area for people who had dogs that wanted to like have a space for their dogs to be. And we had another gate that was a little bit more to the side, but still very iconic that we would do like themed pickets um, and so it was incredible to move and flow between those different energies and those different communities and try to help organize and hold space for them, be able to coordinate food donations and food trucks. Uh, we sent out a nightly call sheet for our volunteers that literally listed who was serving each gate as if they were coming to a film set every day. That's um, So we tried to really That's capture nice. and preserve that energy um, to be able to keep the momentum going for 118 days. Wow. It's, I love the passion that every single actor like and especially a captain like you brought to the energy or whatever they were going a lot they were going to that day because i saw so much from your page on instagram uh you be also became like a content creator creating so many different videos wearing the straw hat i know we are a we don't <laughs> have video but the audience should know brendan has one of the <laughs> coolest like hats and it's got pineapples on it i love seeing that that became your like little trademark but i also saw it you did. wear like this like your little yellow tutu from time to time so you know you, that was, you got well, that was into two, it that was tutu tuesdays two, which two, was tuesdays. a special weekly occasion that we would do okay well, how did that come to be uh one of our strike captains uh 
BJ Lang. Um, he's a former vet and he does a lot of comedy, a lot of stand up or improv okay. comedy. Um, and he showed up day one, I want to say, with this full blue ensemble of like a blue wig, headband, sunglasses, and a blue tutu. And by the third week, uh, in solidarity, he brought a bag of tutus so that everybody could wear a two a tutu Tuesday um, tutu. And it stuck. Every single Tuesday, yeah. people wanted to wear their tutus. We had other picketers start showing up with their own tutus. And it just kind of became a thing that we did on the line every Tuesday to kind of That's mix up the days a little bit. That's amazing. And then you also did the, were there like any other days where it inspired like a tutu Tuesday? Was there like a like a pizza Friday where, you know, people donated pizza to you? Like, was there stuff like that? We had themed pickets um, intermittently throughout. So anybody could schedule a themed picket if they wanted to. Um, and then we would host that group. So that mixed up a lot of the days. Uh, typically on Thursdays was karaoke. So we had a karaoke group that would pull up in a van and set up karaoke. And so people could sign up and do karaoke as they walked. Um, and then generally on Fridays, we, we always had kind of a self-assigned like lot captain and cheer captain for okay. the day. And at the end of every single picket, we would have the lot captain and the cheer captain give information that was necessary for the next day's picket and then lead everybody in a cheer. And on Fridays, what we would do is actually just line up all of our strike captains and let everybody do one cheer. So that way we could go into the weekend having done like a big rally. What was your favorite cheer? Oh man, <laughs> there's so many. I, I think off the top of my head, there's one that is, uh, we are sexy, we are funny, all these networks owe us money. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Pretty good. Pretty good. Okay, now going into the shade, because I know since you just shade, we were talking shade, uh, one of the big things that we talked about on the podcast was that um, there was an incident that occurred on the uh, NBC Universal did, is that they trimmed the trees outside the studio where the SAG actors were picketing. Did any studios try to cause you unintentional harm, but like causing fear where you were going to like maybe get dehydrated and walk away? Or like, was there something like on the lines of that that you might have experienced? I mean, I can't assign intent to anybody. No. Um, but I, and again, I was at Paramount the entire time because that was where I was told mm -hmm. to kind of be a head volunteer. Uh, Paramount was very unique in the sense that we have a lot of drive-on traffic. Um, mm -hmm. And so we had a number of traffic incidents that got pretty scary and pretty dangerous. Um, I actually ended up wearing a body cam every single day that I was there oh, so gosh. that I could clip out LAPD reports um, pretty much twice a week. There was some incident that I would have to clip out um, and elevate to a legal level. Um, we had two of our captains get hit. Um, by I was cars. just going to ask that. Oh, my God. Um, I was clipped um, early on at one point, which is what made me start wearing the body cam. Um, no one got, like, incredibly hurt. Like, no one was hospitalized, which is great. Um, but, you know, it, it was it was scary. Um, I won't assign any of that personally to Paramount because mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of oncoming traffic that's part of the just normal course of doing business, deliveries, things like that. And a lot of those people, I think got there weren't paying attention saw they couldn't get into the like place that they had to like deliver something or do a job freaked out a little bit and just stopped becoming a human like their their brain just melted down and they just hit the gas um so oh, I, I don't assign a lot of malice to that i just think it's ignorance and fear and like i'm stuck in traffic now and i don't know what to do and i have to get through there and my livelihood depends on that and so right. i assign a lot more fear and anxiety to that than i do cruelty or intentionality the paramount um security team was always incredibly available to us to clip out um property footage you know like of those cars if we needed okay. another angle they were always communicating with us about the needs of you know, if we needed to call an ambulance or, you know, if we had a security issue arise. So I think that they did the best on site that they could do, given this massive event had shown up at their doorstep every single day for four months. So at least I want to say at least they were compassionate then if something did happen, they well, they could be li liable legally. But so I guess that's one thing. But we're not providing footage, but at least they showed some what's the word? I don't want to say kindness but 
you know, they at I, least I, they I, were think kind, I think kindness is a perfectly fair word. At the end of the day, the position I took, especially in all my videos, is I said that I think we have a lot more in common with our peers on the other side of these gates, because okay. at the end of the day, the people working inside of Paramount were not the lawyers in a conference room not meeting with our negotiating committee and not right. giving us fair working and waging, wages and working conditions. So they are our partners and our, our peers and our collaborators that we're all going back to work with right now. When I drive onto the Paramount lot, I will be talking to those security individuals. When I go into those auditions or those offices or those studios, I will be interfacing with those basic employees and janitorial yeah. staff that work at that lot. Um, and they're not the enemy. We are all yeah. in this together. So what I want to ask you next, now that the strike is over, what is next and what were the resolutions that came about? Sure. You... Um, we got um, a lot of updates to this contract. Um, you know, I, I know from being a union complainer for 17 years, um, I've always had a lot of opinions about what we didn't get in a negotiation. Um, I, I think our negotiating committee went into this negotiation with pages and pages of items that had not been updated in decades, literally in decades. And they really went in making sure that they could get a win for every category. So there's things like singers and dancers and background actors. They really, really did a lot of great language for background actors um, and our stunt coordinators who have been left behind a lot. Um, they got some stunt coordinator language. We have never had any performance capture language in our contract ever. Um, so when you see someone on a TV show or a movie doing performance capture, um, that, that is uncovered work. There are no rules or guidelines for that work. That's just an extra thing they're deciding to have that person do as part of their TV and theatrical agreement. Okay. Um, and so we actually have some early language. It isn't comprehensive, but it's the beginning of having a subclause to cover that work. Um, but the big ticket items, of course, were increasing wages to keep up with inflation, which we're on the path to doing, which is great. Um, some sort of secondary payment system when it comes to big streaming. We usually call that a residual. The studios will not call that a residual. So they created a bonus system based off of the highest performing content on the platform. Um, so that's the compromise that got made there of, you won't call it a residual, but we need to have a residual. So let's call it a bonus payment and let's figure out the, the metric for calculating that. Okay. Um, and then artificial intelligence was the big ticket item and it caused the most controversy not only through negotiations, but through the ratification process and will remain a, a very hot button issue, I think, going into the future. Um, and I think that that just comes down to the fact that this technology is very scary and unknown, especially because the culture behind this technology seems to be very predatory and very toxic, you know, not even in acting. There's a lot of industries already that are claiming they can scrape the entire internet, put that into a learning model, and then that just becomes uncopyrighted, available mm -hmm. material for anybody to use. And yeah. that's that's not yeah. founded in federal copyright law. So I don't know why that would be founded in a tech company's mission statement. Yep. Um, but but I think that these are these are things we'll just be fighting at a federal and global level uh, in every industry moving forward. But at least we have some beginning of a conversation and core protections uh, to be able to start enforcing when they go outside of those. Yeah. So I Oh, go ahead, Mac. Go ahead. I was going to say with the AI thing, that was a big thing I read about being a very big issue with the uh, negotiations. Do you feel that a lot of the company studios, like, I'll give an example, like the Flash movie, when they had George Reeves AI for the Superman movie, do you feel like in that case, it'd be like, hey, we'll use this likeness of somebody, you know, we'll get the permission for the state, we'll do it like that, instead of being like, hey you came in for one day of shooting. We're going to put you in a background role. We're not going to tell you about it at residuals. Do you feel like that that could be an issue going forward when it comes to these types of problems, when it comes to the guilds from writer and the actors? Well, so, something that I wandered into, especially during the ratification process is, look, if we all want to sit around and pitch concepts for an episode of Black Mirror, we can do that. Like, there's a lot mm -hmm. of ideas of how this all might be abused. Mm -hmm. And every contract in our, we, we've been around for 90 years. Producers have always been pushing the boundaries of what is fair and reasonable within our contracts since we've had a union. Um, that is ultimately their job is to find the gray area, to push those boundaries, to try to cost uh, cut costs as much as possible. That's what a producer's job effectively is. Our union's job is to, on the other side of that, 
push back against those, find enforcement language, be able to hold them accountable when they violate that language, and make sure that actors are protected and paid. So I do believe that we will see a variety of very creative applications of this technology that are not to the spirit and the intention of this agreement. And that's what arbitration is for, that's what enforcement is for, and that's what claims are for. Um, and I'll use a completely separate example that has less kind of science fiction nuance to it. Um, I was horrified through this entire strike process to meet with so many of my actor friends who were telling me about violations that they had had to very boring elements of their contract. Like, for example, they auditioned for a guest star, which is a certain rate. But when their agent went to negotiate, uh, they said, well, it's actually going to be a co-star rate. Take it or leave it. We'll move on to somebody else if you won't take it. And I'm going, oh. well, that's a that's a California state labor dispute. You can't list a job with a certain salary and then walk that back. Like right. that's that's against the law. <laughs> so in some ways, you not filing that claim and then being able to show up with a stack of 500 claims where X company had violated that provision of not just our contract, but local labor law defeats our ability to enforce the language that does exist, the protections that do exist. And mm -hmm. so when it comes to artificial intelligence, what it's going to come down to is really following the letter of the rules that have been laid out and then being aware of the places where we lose those fights, where we go, oh, that was a very sneaky gray area. And when we come back in two and a half years, we're going to renegotiate that. I think what this even rings an alarm for, especially since actors like you, there was like a high profile case where we just saw Scarlett Johansson's likeness yeah. and she's suing now. Yeah. So uh, how do you feel about that as an actor? D does there some sort of fear set into you that where someone could take advantage of your likeness and image? Since you, if, let's just say you go into audition once and then they take you and they go, all right, we're going to use them in this episode of Black Mirror, speaking of Black Mirror. Does that put some sort of fear into you? Well, sure. Mm -hmm. But I don't know what to do with that fear because that fear isn't actionable. Um, because at the end of the day, I think the the greatest fear of this technology, again, is not the tool, it's the culture. It's having a bunch of people out there mm -hmm. thinking they have the right to take Scarlett Johansson's image and use it however they see fit to make a commercial. Because there is, to be clear, no one in our industry who thought they could take like a clip of Black Widow from Marvel, put it in a deodorant commercial and get away with it. Like right. that's not a reasonable belief at all. You yeah. will be sued for the rest of your life for that. Um, yeah. And so there will be people, look, people rob banks to this day. Yep. Just because you do it at a high volume doesn't mean you've created an innovative business model that scales. You're still committing crime. Um, I like the way you put and that so, analogy, it makes sense. So I, I think what, what we are worried about is the ubiquity of this technology means that there's a lot of random third party internet folk that are just having fun with the tools and think it's really cool to like use a celebrity. Um, and there, to be clear, that is not validated by any copyright law that has ever existed. You are breaking the law. You are committing theft. You are committing a crime. You should be penalized to the maximum Level. extent possible. And just don't do it. Just don't do it. Like the tools are very cool. I've used the tools. The tools are very cool. Um, a great example of this is the um, Ghostwriter 977 who released the Drake song. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Well, which is it? Are you an innovative new artist that's using new tools to create your music? Or are you bootlegging Drake's career, right? Are you right. just a copycat that has no value? You have no value. You would not go viral. We would not be talking about you. We would not know your name if you didn't stand on the shoulders of Drake without his permission, right? right. That, that's just like, that's, we've seen that in like entourages, like people being like, you know, oh, my buddy's Drake, you know, like that's, that's effectively that's what you're like doing. You're like, the posse you're like doing a Toyota brand deal because you're buds with Drake rather than being like, no, I'm an individual person. I'm an artist and this is my art and it has value and worth and I'm going to put it out of the world. So I think we're going to keep seeing this with AI is, and I think I lay this at the feet of the AI enthusiast. You have to decide if this is a legitimate tool or not. We can't do that for you. Mm -hmm. If this is a legitimate tool, use the tool to create new, compelling, cool, new work 
and new voices and new artists and new brands and new franchises that we get excited about. Otherwise, if you just need to bootleg off of the rest of us, that ain't original. That isn't yours. So then that doesn't actually validate that this is actually a useful or new business model or tool. So I think it's up to the AI community to legitimize themselves by creating value outside of bootlegging other people's value that you don't have consent for. This opens the door to so many like other ideas and other questions I would love to like explore and talk about. But I really, what I want to also move on to next is the residuals that, or the new residuals, the bonuses, whatever you want to call it. I've been calling it residuals the entire time. But a lot of popular old content, like what we just saw from the USA Network with Suits, making a huge comeback on Netflix and even Peacock, because it was also on, it's also on Peacock. Um, Suits got a huge boost in ratings. Now, is some like you could probably answer this because I was thinking about this. Um, do, will the actors of like let's say like Suits or I can even just say this: you got to star on Wizards of Waverly Place. Will you get like something more or residual like yeah. that coming your way? I think what's difficult about the residual conversation, I think that this is what made it such a magic or like a serendipitous moment in history is that we were seeing the 15 year disappointment of the promise of big streaming of like, oh, we're going to create this innovative new model that builds more consumers, that gets more people watching more content, and it's going to be better for the industry. And the moment that the check came due, they were like, oh, no, 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 actually, we don't have any money. This doesn't, oh, this doesn't actually make any profit and we can't pay any residuals on this. And it's like, well, then it sounds like this is a bad business model because TV yeah. was like a money printing machine. Yeah. So why did we kill that for this? And I think what ultimately that comes down to is that the residual model that we have in place is now this compromise based off of the bad faith argument that these companies actually are not as profitable as they have purported to be for the last 15 years. They don't actually command the sort of money that TV um, and commercials brought to that industry previously. They don't command the same sort of revenue that the box office used to command to theatrical. So they are a diminished revenue capture of what was a very profitable business model. And therefore, they are able to pay out far less. Um, and so the new residual model for the big streaming companies is a bonus structure based off of uh, a, the content performing a certain level. So basically, it has to have 20% of the subscribers within that region watch it in its first 90 days. Okay. And then it will trigger a bonus payment to those performers. Interesting. This is going to be so interesting to see how it goes going forward. Um, There's a, uh, there, in the in the contract language, which by the way, I read the entire MOA document as a podcast, on, it's on Spotify. Um, there is a table of year one, year two, year three, year four, year five um, for the percentage and how you kind of calculate that metric moving forward. Very interesting. Um, my At least my final question for you before I think we should move in, because I want to acknowledge you in your career. What do you hope for the future now for yourself as an actor going forward and what the resolutions have been made? I mean, as an actor, I hope to get back to work. It's my favorite place in the world to be is on set. I love telling stories. Um, I'm excited about two films that will come out in the festival circuit next year. One is called The Daylong Brothers. Imagine if um, Tarantino wrote a musical. Um, That's kind of the vibe. Um, so I sing and I do car chases and shoot guns. It's fantastic. Um, oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> and the other is called Succubus, um, which is a, a real odd, quirky uh, horror film that kind of starts off a bit like Searching, where it's all in screen and in world yeah. uh, cameras. And then when I get sucked inside the device, um, it actually moves to full cinematic and it feels very Kubricky in the way that it's been shot. It's, it's very stylized and very cool. Um, so those will come out next year, but also I'm just looking for my next job to get back to work. I think from a, what I hope to do career union wise is that like, this has activated me into a new level of service. I've been a part of the new technology committee for many, many years, but obviously that's going to be an important voice in monitoring and researching how AI is used. So I hope to be in a leadership position there to be able to assign work groups that can really work around the clock on finding the best language and practices and enforcement to really 
keep an eye on all these different applications, whether it's streaming or whether it's tracking of digital replicas or whether it's applications of AI and VFX. Um, and so I'm, I'm excited to be kind of more a part of my union than I ever have been before and preserve this community that we've built. Well, you built history going off of that, going on long as the treacherous road yeah. that you went and you got your resolutions. You did everything that you could. And as fans of Cinephiles, we are so proud of what you and everybody had achieved in the film community. We are, we applaud you. So, uh, well, we couldn't, we couldn't do it without Cinephiles. In fact, you know, I think the biggest thing in all of this is what we knew was that it, we never wanted to hurt the consumer. But at any point in time, we could have asked for a boycott of a specific partner that was being disagreeable um, or to have not gone to the box office. And we really did feel the sense of the community um, that you all would have our backs, which was incredible. But also things like Barbieheimer being a record breaking box office event really demonstrated the value that people love movies, people mm -hmm. love TV and we love movies and we love TV. So it gave us the biggest weapon against a handful of CEOs and lawyers who don't really care what industry they're in. They just want to yep. make money for us to go, no, this, we love this stuff at a non-monetary level yeah. and it makes a lot of money and yeah. the fans love it at a non-monetary level and they're willing to pay a lot of money. Exactly. So you better be good to both the consumer to be both to and the creators here. Be good to both ends. That's all that we got to say. So, uh, Congratulations. And it was so great following your content. But I also want to acknowledge that you also starred in a film that came out during the strike and it was like called The Plus One. Yes. So and I wrote it. You did? I did. I co-wrote it with Austin Highsmith Garces. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. I want, okay. Now I have questions. How'd you get people like that in your cast? Like, first of all, that's a huge and amazing. So I have, it is the first screenplay of mine that I didn't produce, like that I didn't, you know, we, we legitimately optioned this screenplay, like sold the screenplay. Um, and we did it uh, many, many years ago. It got kind of de derailed by COVID for a little while and then okay. it got picked up again and it had many lives along the way. Um, but this last iteration, um, incredible team at Almost Never Films and Save On Pictures uh, came on board and they attached um, people like Ashanti and her team with Demetrius um, and Stefan. Um, we attached Cedric the Entertainer. Yeah, um, and Jonathan Cervo, Bennett. We had Jonathan Bennett. You know, we had Wesley uh, was good. Um, and you were in it. DJ Britt and 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 I and Austin and I were in it. So Austin is my wife in it. So the two of us negotiated that we could play these two little side characters that we'd pretty much written in there as like, can we just be on set having a good time, please? Thank you so much. Um, so yeah, so we got to be these like this grumpy couple that was on the destination wedding vacation with the rest of them. I can't wait to watch it because I just found out about this movie uh, through my job, which we'll have to talk about later after when we're not recording about this, but. Um, but yeah, that's that's amazing though. Was it? And then this is going back to SAG. Did she? Did it suck not being able to promote it? Oh, it was devastating. Of course, oh. right? Like you know, and I went you know by myself to a movie theater, you know, with my partner, and we watched it. And, and you know, like you know, the only two people in the theater on like a weird random you know Wednesday because um, we couldn't couldn't share and promote it you know I made a little video of me in the movie theater watching it that I knew I could post when the strike ended and it's you know first thing I posted as soon as the strike was over um, but it meant that like the first movie that I wrote that was in theaters I couldn't promote until after it was out of theaters and now it's just <laughs> like any other thing I've ever made it's just yep. streaming wherever you watch streaming stuff speaking of streaming stuff uh I told you when we I got to interview for Sky Magazine, I watched uh, your film, Non-Transferable. Uh, Mac also watched it, too. Yes, so, I did. Well, thank you. <laughs> yes. So uh, just really quickly for the audience who did not get to listen to the Sky or haven't listened to the Sky Magazine uh, interview, can you talk about your experience working on that film? Sure. So Non-Transferable was a movie that I shot in 2015, 2016. Um, it's a script that I – it was one of the first scripts I ever wrote – as just a very producible, producible like Hallmark movie. So it is a woman gets broken up with by her boyfriend. She has vacation packages uh, in both of their names, um, but mostly in his name. And then he breaks up with her. And so she finds a guy with the same name to redeem the trip. Yay, they, they go on a trip, they fight the whole time, they fall in love. 
Um, very easy, very digestible, very producible. I thought this is not going to scare investors. This is not going to scare brands. This will just be a very clean way for me to dip my toe in to making my first feature. And I cold called tourism boards all over the world to sponsor me and my friends to come to the country and make a movie. So we shot on three different continents, fully put up in five-star resort hotels, flown first class, equipment on the ground, meals, the whole thing. It was like going on a vacation with nine of my best friends and making a movie. Um, and then the movie has been distributed all over the world in a variety of different places. Um, when I made that movie and released it, Austin uh, came to the like premiere of it and she was like, I want to make a movie like this. And that's what made us start writing the plus one. That's and amazing. so we then wrote the plus one as a destination wedding movie um, that we could pitch around to different places. And ultimately the incredible economy and tourism board of St. Petersburg, um, Florida hosted us and put us up in hotels and all that to make the movie there. That's amazing. Because Mac, you said you thought it was shot on all one location. Remember yeah, it looks this? it looks really good because like I am a Hallmark movie. Uh, just I'm in it. Like I just love the Hallmark movies, all of it. And like I just thought, like, wow, this like this film looks really. It looks like it was shot on location. Because some of the shots, I'm like, whoa, it actually looks like that's on location. So I thought it was made it like it added to the atmosphere of it. And I was getting really into it. We both There's one it, shot. So we're in front of the Library of Celsus, which is this like Greek ruins. Um, it's, it's stunning. It's beautiful. Um, but we were like, we were like an indie film crew. We were just like running through as fast as we could, getting shots, getting the light, uh, trying to coordinate random people also there on their vacation. And I remember when the DP met our VFX artist at the premiere. They both had happened to go through the same college, and they didn't know the other one was working on the movie. And the DP turned to him and he was like wait, that shot at the Library of Celsus, we didn't shoot a plate shot. And the VFX artist said, yep, I built one. <laughs> and he had gone through and found a frame when there wasn't an extra in every, or like a random bogey in every single part of the shot and stitched it together to make a single empty frame of this iconic landmark in Turkey um, so that we could have that in the background instead of a bunch of random people that were constantly moving through. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's something you need to talk about, but I love knowing that now. Um, one one other thing I want to talk to you about really quickly, um, but you also worked in VR, virtual reality stuff. I mean, I could talk about that do. now because you still work on it now. My husband is actually probably playing with his MetaQuest right now. Yes. probably doing something. Shout out to the MetaQuest. Um, is there anything new that you plan on cooking up? Because I know you've been posting about some stuff working with VR stuff, and I know you're still continuing. Can you discuss about your work about that? Sure. I basically perform live theater in virtual reality, which means that either on-site participants can wear a headset and interact with me as characters and co-create the story, or virtual people can join in their headset or on their computer and be a character that way in the story. So it's kind of like a Pixar movie come to life that we are puppeting and interacting in real time like a play. Um, I've been touring a musical for the last two years that I wrote called Non-Player Character, where I play an NPC of a video game who sees the hero die and does not know how to process grief. So the audience has to teach me how to navigate the five virtual worlds of grief. Um, and then I, it gets broken up with songs along the way. So it's kind of the Disney musical structure. Um, and then literally a week ago, I was at the VR awards where NPC was nominated, um, for an award, but they had us be the opening act entertainment so we opened sing, the whole right? show with a musical number from a brand new musical called degenerate where the audience has a phone app uh, brought up on their screen and they can type prompts into ai and it populates the virtual world around me while i perform so they are building the world around me while i perform using ai regenerative ai that's like something you could see in like the, the video game, just the words that just happened. That's like something we would have seen there. I was just watching it's, that with my husband. What, and D D Matt, did you see the video game awards stuff? Of course I did. It they was, did uh, something with an orchestra and something mm -hmm. like that. And they were doing all sorts of crazy stuff. I, I don't what, know what the performance it was, but I think, Mac, you know what I'm talking about. Brenda, I, I do want to ask too. This is my thing with like mm -hmm. some of your works. Um, when I was going through your works, I saw something that caught my eye because I'm I'm going to assume you're a gamer. Like you like some video games to play every time and then. So I love I love video gaming. The dirty secret about me is that I grew up without a console. 
I am terrible at playing. Like my, my desire to play is not matching of my skill to play. Mm-hmm. And so I will play anything I can get my hands on, but I'm garbage at it. So what I actually like to do is watch speed plays of new <laughs> games that come out because I, I'm just so fascinated in getting to see the game. And then it's kind of like, I'm pretending that I'm a badass because I can mm-hmm. watch the game played expertly, um, but I don't have to be as expert a player. So it's a little bit of both. I love playing, but you do not want me on your squad. Like <laughs> I will destroy your metrics. I was going to say, because that would lead into, you made a musical. You directed and produced Assassin's Creed, the musical. And I'm a huge yeah. Assassin's Creed fan. So I just want to know, like, what was the inspiration to be like, I'm going to take this series, which is like, you know, is known for being a historical type video game. I'm like, I'm going to make it a musical. Like, what was the inspiration to turning it like that? So there was a group called Machinima ETC that was part of the Machinima yep. game network. And it was a group of guys like Bruce Green and um, what was Kyle's name? Group of guys would host this thing and they would basically just like riff on games and like make fun of game culture. They off the cuff one time on one of these live streams said like, oh, what if you did like Assassin's Creed the musical as like the worst off off Broadway musical that nobody (laughs) wanted to see? And the, the comments went crazy. Like people were like, give that to me right now. And so they were like who in the internet space has produced and directed musicals before and uh teaming up with uh cormac bluestone was the composer on that um and tessa monroe was the choreography on, on that and i basically oversaw the recording session of the album we then shot at youtube space for a week to be able to like bring all the musical numbers to life and we tried to really lean into like the cringe factor of like the least produced like epic music epic jokes really cool wire work and stuff we were doing but then like really dumb props like just the cheapest crappiest props in the world um and like a light would fall down at one point or like the hay would just fall like confetti like very lamely um and so we released that on machinima it did very very well when machinima shuttered rooster teeth bought five pieces of content from machinima in its like going away going out of business sale and mm-hmm. Assassin's Creed the musical was one of them. So Love I it. can proudly say that I directed a musical for Rooster Teeth. Yeah. That's amazing. Some, somehow, like not really, but somehow, yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's, that's legitimate. That gives me an excuse <laughs> then. I want to watch that now with my husband. It is, so it it's gives a, me. It's, I watched it and I was like, this is uh, it's like, listen. Because we all remember the Spider-Man turn off the dark musical. So this is this is much better. This is how you do something. But like the thing with the Spider-Man, I think they were trying to be serious and it just didn't work. Exactly. From what it sounds no, like. The key is it's so bad that it becomes good again. That's, yes. that's the sweet spot we were looking for. What I was going to say was it sounds like that thing where it was going on on Broadway. It was like it was over the UK and then it came over to the US and it was called and something goes wrong it's where it's like the actors are like going into oh, the, the goes audience. wrong show yeah that's yeah. what it's so that's what it sounds like and they just did a peter yes. pan version of it yes. too and where they're going in the audience putting up wires stuff may fall down like that so that's yes. amazing I, mac look at you look into the knowing that video game stuff i would have <laughs> never known that about you but <laughs> Uh, but before we wrap up because since i am a wizards and selena gomez stan uh i really want to know what was it like working on Wizards of Waverly Place for that short time? Because you also did dance in that episode. You were Hank Russo. It's true. Can you talk uh, about I your guess. experience on that? Yes. I, I played their grandfather when they go back in time. Um, and it was just complete. It was the first television show I ever booked. Um, Hell yeah. It was magical to be there. They were truly such a family. Like David Day Louise was truly the dad of that set and of that entire family. Um, and you, from the table read through rehearsals, again, it, it's a multicam. It films in front of an audience. So like you get to really like live with everybody for the week and like keep coming back every day and rehearsing the same scenes and like really refining everything and learning the choreography. And that to me was just... I think if I'd done my first TV job as like a quick little one line co-star on, you know, one day for one hour on a set, I would not have felt like truly part of the family. So to not just scripted, but to gen- gen- like genuinely become part of the family on that set was amazing. Um, 
it felt bizarre to be having like conversations with Selena, just like casually just hanging out on set between takes um, and just learning, really like learning and impressed by her. Cause you would watch her have to like go off to like tutoring and then come back and then like have to go off to voice lessons. And like, I remember her walking by humming a little riff. It was like this little like riff she kept on humming like repeatedly through the week. Oh. And I was just like, I, I don't know like what, like, okay, I guess like she's just got working on something or whatever. Um, but it was like, it got in my head because it was so consistent. Her album came out the next year and it was, that riff was like one little piece of that album oh, of I one song. I knew what it was then. And I was sitting there just going like, that's the dedication she gave to what was a throwaway, like singular moment in one song in an album. And I watched her work and, and machinate around that for a week. And that's cool. Like to, to be an artist that brings that level of granular detail to your work is just so inspiring. Oh my God. And uh, just so you know, for if you all want to check out that episode, it was Rock Around the Clock, I think that was called. The it episode was Rock was. Around the Clock. And it's, it was season four, episode 25. You guys want to go watch it it's on Disney Plus, but you've done it so many other things like uh, elementary. Um, what else have you done though? Timeless, from what I know. <laughs> Pack a lunch. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. But thank you though for, if you want to shout out anything else that you have working on or where can the good people follow you? On social. I am Brendan A. Bradley on social media, all of the places where I have an account. So if there's a Brendan A. Bradley, it is likely me. Um, unless you want to say something mean, in which case I'm not on social media. Please don't no, no, we're not, no, no hate trains here. No hate trains here. Don't worry. We'll never have that be sent to anybody's way. So uh, what else? Besides all the good stuff, thank you for taking the time out of your busy thank schedule you so to speak with us. We learned a lot because like in our last episode, we tried to find out and describe our audience what was brought to the table and what resolutions were. I'm so happy we were able to get a really great perspective who was, like we said, a strike captain and made us realize the future and what it's like for you and everybody else. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thanks, thank you. Thank you for signal boosting it. And if anybody has any questions about getting involved in the union, let me know. Well, thank you so much. Thank we'll you. let you have your time back. Uh, guys, this has been our episode. Be sure to look out on our Christmas episode because this episode's coming out first. So uh, for now, go follow us on our socials and we'll talk to you all soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.